Our second scripture reading today comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. We will be reading verses 33 through 46. And you can find that in your Pew Bibles on page 1533. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, approached he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it find that they are building upon the cornerstone who is Christ Jesus. If you don't know who George Mueller is, you should learn. He was a 19th century Christian evangelist whom God had called to be the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. And through his work, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. But that wasn't the only thing that he did. He also established 117 schools that offered Christian education to more than 120,000 individuals. George had such an impact on both the destitute and the lowly that that he was accused by some as lifting the poor above their, their natural station in Great Britain. Needless to say, George Mueller was a champion for God. But he didn't become this man by following his own will. Rather, he obeyed the will of Christ. You see, there were three questions that he would ask himself before he started any project. 
One, is this the Lord's work? Two, is this the Lord's way? And finally, is this the Lord's time? George had submitted himself to the authority of Christ. He wanted to build off of Christ's work and not his own. And because of that, God used him in amazing, amazing ways. Today we have found ourselves in a story where the opposite is true. Where we see men who who want to build their own kingdom. Where we see a rejection of Christ's authority and the consequences of that rejection. But before we jump in, let's, let's remind ourselves of where we left off. We are now in the heart of Passover week. Jesus had already entered into Jerusalem, and he did so in a dramatic fashion. Not only did he ride in as a, as a king, but he also then cleansed the temple, acting as if he was the Jewish high priest as well. But he went, he went further, taking on the role of a prophet by teaching the people in the temple courtyards. By, by taking these roles, the roles of prophet, priest, and king, Christ was establishing his authority. But as we soon found out, that authority would be challenged by the established leadership within Jerusalem. It was the chief priests and the elders who asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Christ answered this challenge by pointing them to John the Baptist, the the very prophet of God who had declared Jesus to be the Messiah. He then went on to share three parables, each one directed at these religious leaders. And we saw the first one, the last time I preached, with the parable of the two sons. If you recall, it was the first son who, who had said no to his father when he was asked to go work in the vineyard. And yet, this son did his father's will after he had repented and chose to go work. And then there was the second son who, who, who showed a display of piety by, by telling his father, calling him sir, yes, I will go work in your vineyard. And yet this son's piety was only ankle deep as he did not do what his father had asked of him. Jesus used this tale to make a distinction between the religious leaders who refused to repent at John the Baptist's teaching and then some of the worst sinners that there were those who actually believed John's message, turned from their sins and trusted in the Messiah that John pointed to. And that was the point. The kingdom belongs to those who repent and submit to Christ's authority. But there are two more lessons that Jesus had for these men. And we find the next in our text for today. Let's look again at verses 33 through 37. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. 
Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent the servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Now the language that Jesus is using here would have been familiar to any Jewish audience. And it should be familiar to us too. For often in the Old Testament, God refers to the nation of Israel as his vineyard. I mean, consider what we read earlier in Isaiah 5, which contains a a parallel language to this passage. Just look at at verses 1 and 2. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. And if we read a little bit further, we see in verse 7 that God gives us definitions for this imagery. This is what verse 7 says. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. It is from passages like this, as well as other places in the Old Testament, that we understand this metaphor of God's vineyard describing Israel. And so when Jesus gave this parable, the imagery that he is using would have been quite obvious to anyone who was listening. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. The landowner represents God. The tenants are the leaders within the nation. The servants that are sent to collect the fruit, they are the prophets. And this son is none other than Jesus himself, God's Messiah. But we should also see two things that are laid out in this story. Two sets of characteristics that define our protagonist, the landowner, and our antagonist, the tenants. The landowner is both generous and patient in his demeanor, while the tenants, on the other hand, they are rebellious and callous in nature. You see, the the landowner, he did everything possible to make sure that his vineyard would be able to produce fruit. He built a wall around it to keep out the wild beasts. He built a watchtower to guard against thieves and, and possible fires. He even dug a wine press right there so that the production of wine would be when the fruit is at its ripest. There was... Nothing that these tenants lacked in order to fulfill their duties. The landowner had planned out everything so that they might reap a harvest. But these tenants desired more, did they not? I mean, they wanted the vineyard for themselves. And so when the servants came to collect, they either beat them or or killed. Now, one would think that this landowner would have had enough, right? I mean, if it was my vineyard, I would have been down there and I would have kicked those guys right out and replaced them. 
But that's not what he did. No. Rather, he was patient with them, hoping, hoping to see repentance in their lives, that they would see the error of their ways, and that the next servant that he, that he would send would bring back a harvest. Throughout Israel's history, it was the prophets who were treated the, the most harshly. They, and the reason that was so was because the people did not want to hear the voice of God. Some of these prophets, they were chased and hunted. Others, such as Jeremiah, were imprisoned. Still more were, were beaten and tragically killed. From Isaiah being sawn in two to John the Baptist being beheaded, the, the, the servants of God bore the brunt of man's fury. And yet God patiently waited for repentant hearts. And then we come across something in this story that should give us pause. The landowner sent his own son. They will respect my son, he said. Now either the landowner is, is just plain stupid, or he has some other intention that we do not see. For given the, the, the track record of these tenants, this was a very, very risky move. I mean, who would put their own son's life on the line like this? But when you really think about it, there is a compassion behind this move. For the concern of the landowner is not for his son's safety, but for the safety of those wicked tenants. He doesn't want to bring about the judgment on these men. Rather, he wants to show them grace. And so he sends his son, one who would represent him more than any other, as, as kind of a last chance to make amends. Surely, they will respect my son. This was an effort to bring about their repentance. Either these men will see the error of their ways and give over the my son, or they will remain calloused and stubborn and refuse the grace that I offer them. You see, to reject the son is to reject the father. For the son carries the authority of the father. This wasn't just some slave that they could beat and kill. No. It's as if the landowner was right there among them. How did they respond? Look at verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They have rejected the son. And in so doing, they have rejected the only hope that they had of salvation. They took him outside the vineyard walls 
and they murdered him. It is at this point where Jesus asked a poignant question. Look at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Look how they answered. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. These chief priests and these Pharisees, they answered correctly. They, they understood the parable. It is in the rejection of the Son that judgment comes. Those, those tenants, they would be brought to a, a wretched end, and the vineyard would be given over to, to others, those who would honor this landowner. I mean, that's the only logical outcome. But to make sure that these men knew that Jesus was talking about them, he then said this. Look, look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The verse that Jesus was quoting here comes to us from Psalm 118, the, the very same psalm that gave us the word Hosanna on Palm Sunday. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus just repeats them straight. It says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now there is some confusion on whether this word capstone should rather be translated as cornerstone. Both here and in Matthew, it, it literally translates as the head of the corner. And so the meaning is is unclear. So what's the difference between a cornerstone and a capstone? Jeff kind of explained this earlier. A, a cornerstone is, a, is the very first stone that the builders lay and, and begin their construction. It is a stone upon which every other stone is measured. But a, but a capstone is a top stone on a roof parapet or on the parapet of city walls. They, they are put in place as a safety measure to make sure that nobody who is on that roof or is walking on top of the city walls falls off to find a tragic end. If you take a look at the picture on the screen there, you, you'll see what I'm talking about. Think of a safety rail on, on a high deck. Now, in my personal opinion, I think the NIV gets it right, that it should be translated as capstone. For if, if the stone was rejected, that means that some other stone was chosen as a cornerstone. And that this stone was used last, becoming the capstone. And this fits in well with what Jesus was saying. You see, if, if this capstone, if it's not set right, then it can become a danger instead of being a safety measure, and thus defeating its purpose. I mean, say it's placed too low, uh, then 
someone who was unwary on top of the roof, they could trip over it, sending him over the wall, crashing downwards. And at the same time, if the capstone is not securely fastened, if it doesn't, if it doesn't fit nicely with the other stones, well, then it can become dislodged when someone leans against it, endangering those who are walking below. And this is what Jesus meant when he said this, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Listen, Jesus is meant to be more than just a capstone. He is to be our cornerstone as well. He is to be the stone upon which every other stone is measured. But if he is rejected, rejected as they rejected that cornerstone, if the wall is built using a different measurement, then this final stone, this, this capstone, it will not fit. And this is the point that Jesus is making. If you reject the Son, if you reject the one that the Father has sent, then you are not building the house of the Lord. Rather, you are building an altogether different structure. Again, this goes back to the authority of Jesus. In the parable of the tenets, the, the, those tenants, they did not respect the authority of the landowner. And they thought that they could take the vineyard for themselves. That if they killed the son, then it would be all theirs. And the same thing is true with the stone that the builders rejected. <clears throat> they didn't want to build off of the measurements of God's cornerstone. And so they chose a, a different stone to be their standard. Do you see it? Both are describing a rejection of God's authority. Both are a rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that rejection, the kingdom of God would be taken from them and would be given to a people who would produce its fruit. It would be given to the prostitutes. It would be given to the tax collectors. It would be given to those who, who had repented and chosen to follow Jesus. It would be given to the Gentiles, those wild olive branches that, that would be grafted in. Those who are not ethnic Israel and yet are true Israel nonetheless. Dear friends, God's kingdom will be built upon the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ and upon nothing else. It will be constructed on both who he is and on what he has done. And who is he? He is God in human flesh. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he deserves your allegiance. What has he done? Well, he's done much. He, he has lived the sinless life that, that you and I could not. That's why he is perfect cornerstone. He is flawless in all that he does. But he did more than just that. For he, he took upon himself the punishment for our sins as he died on the cross. 
And then three days later, he demonstrated his authority over death as he rose from the grave, granting victory for those who repent and trust in him. This is both the hope and the challenge for our day. For we are the new tenants working in the vineyard. We are the new builders who have been given Christ as our cornerstone. What will we do when the sun comes to collect? What will be our response when we see some other stone that looks easier to build upon? Will we submit to the authority of Jesus or will we try to create a kingdom of our own? Listen, there, there is a temptation that, that we know better than God. That, that if we use the cornerstones of pragmatism or, or cultural trends or just whatever makes us feel good, that we can build a better kingdom. We, we live in a world that, that wants to entice us to, to, to think that, that this ancient book is just too rigid, is too narrow to build any type of powerful ministry in today's world. But that's not the case. For, for the Bible holds the words of Christ, and His words are authoritative. Bottom line is this. God has given to us everything we need to build His kingdom. He has given us His Word, which brings us wisdom that leads unto salvation. He has given us His Holy Spirit, who, who guards our hearts as He produces fruit within us. He has given us a, a church family so that we might look out for one another. And He has given us His Son, the one who was thrown out of the vineyard and murdered for our sake. The choice is yours. Either Christ will be your authority or the kingdom will be given over to someone else. Either he will be your cornerstone or he will become the capstone that will lead to your ruin. For the chief priests and the Pharisees, they chose the latter. Let's take a look at our, at our final verses. Look at verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. I mean, the irony of the situation couldn't be any richer, could it? I mean, Jesus practically told these men what they were about to do. And yet, in their unrepentant hearts, they, they did not heed his warning at all. This is what I find so amazing about this parable. For it reveals a man's heart. You see, just as those wicked tenants thought that by killing the son, they would be, somehow be able to take the, the inheritance, so too these religious leaders thought the same exact thing. If we can only just get rid of Jesus, then we can gain back control of our inheritance. And yet, it is in that very act, 
in the crucifixion of Christ that the inheritance is allowed to flow to those who seem undeserving and yet have submitted to the authority of the Son. But that's what God does, does He not? He takes our wickedness and turns it on His head. And He does so by creating something that is more glorious than than we could ever imagine. He does the unthinkable by offering up His own Son so that we might have a chance to receive His grace. Dear friends, this, this word of warning that Jesus now gives is a word of mercy. God didn't have to send His Son. He, he could have just sent uh, His army of angels to come and wipe us out. But He did send His Son. And He did so because of His overwhelming love for each and every one of you. Will you submit to Christ's authority? Will you listen to his words and bend the knee? For he truly is your only hope. Do not reject the son of the landowner. Do not reject God's cornerstone. Turn from your sins and whatever unbelief you have and trust in him. Let us pray. We confess that we are not worthy to be a part of your kingdom. Too often we, we want to build our own kingdoms defined by our own measurements. Help us to repent. Build off of the foundation that is your Son, Jesus Christ. We can only do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you Well then, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.